Ain't nothing to do with golf in Augusta, but we have one of the Masters, Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a belt. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, show number 10 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season, scheduled for the week of March the 24th. You might be hearing it a little early, depending on how you get the program. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com. We think it's the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle. Also our Market Pulse commentator this week talking about the new sleepers. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Atlanta shortstop Tyler Pasternicki. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about questions from the first pitch forums. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? They're going to be playing for real this week in Japan, but still, we got to talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. We have Matt Beagle on deck with players from the American League, but leading off the National League. And it's our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. One of the great seasons uh, uh, for any fantasy player in the last long while was last year's season by Matt Kemp, who had uh, just a season to remember, Nick, 39 homers. He stole 40 bases, uh, came within one shot of matching the 40-40 level, 126 RBIs, and a beautiful 324 batting average. We had him at around $60 value, so he turned a profit no matter where he was drafted. And chances are he wasn't drafted that high. So the question is, of course, this year he will be drafted very high, and can he possibly come close to repeating this season? And of course, this year he is—he certainly is going extremely high in drafts, and and the question is absolutely right: Can can he repeat? Several things to look at here. Hit rate last year was 39 percent. That is probably unsustainable. I mean, we look at Kemp's history, and his hit rates have been pretty good, uh, but certainly not 39 percent. Uh, we're looking probably at uh, 35, 36 percent guy. Um, so that uh, you know, even last year at a 39 percent hit rate, eh, you know. Uh, that's a little bit high, 324. So I'm, I'm looking probably if the hit rate comes back down, it's something close to 300. The guy can be a 300 hitter, but not a 320 hitter. Um, his home run per fly is on a three-year rise. I mean, an elite uh, home run per fly of 21% last year. 
but our research suggests that when you get things rising like that, that doesn't keep up, and probably some regression likely to happen in the home run per fly rate in 2012. Uh, so that will help affect the home run per fly total. So um, certainly he's going to be a good solid five-category five contributor. Um, should should be worth a lot of money, but probably not bid on bid on 2012, not on 2011. That probably was kind of a peak season for him, at least at the moment. On the good side of this guy, for the last four years, listen to these at-bat totals, Nick. 606 in 08, 606 in 09, 602 in 2010, and 602 last year. So one of the things we harp on at BaseballHQ.com when we're advising people how to approach these things is at least be sure that when you're spending 40 bucks or a first-round top draft pick that you're getting a guy who's going to be on the field lots. And if nothing else, Matt Kemp is, looks like the kind of guy who's going to be on the field a lot. And that's certainly true. I mean, he's, he's a guy who has not succumbed to a lot of minor injuries. Uh, he's kept himself on the field uh, and does, as you say, get those really high at-bat totals, and, and that should continue. Yeah, but having said that, I, I think he's probably going to be a little overdrafted, especially in auction leagues where, you know, when it starts getting up into the 40s, mid $40 range, then, you know, it, even if he's worth the risk and is going to return 45 or 50 bucks, it just puts such a dent in your budget. It does indeed, and there's a guy, you know, you're looking at, at stolen bases as an important factor here. Here's a guy whose speed score is only 115, so this is not an elite speedster. Uh, in fact, that speed score is down from 136, which is kind of a high in 2009. So his his stolen bases are based on uh, stolen base opportunities, and those should be there, 24%, 24%, 26% the last three years. But uh, expecting a whole lot of stolen bases, again, eh, I don't know. But his he says he wants to go 50-50. I would, I would bet against that. I would, too. His walk rate has risen fairly steadily since 2006. He was out down around 6%. Now he's up around 11% last year, and his contact rate is up into the mid-70s because he takes those big hacks. So he's been a pretty consistent 340, 350 on-base guy, almost 400 last year. I guess they were pitching around him a little more in that fairly weak Dodger lineup, but... As I said, I think this guy, you know, he could very easily repeat a 40-40 season. Uh, the question is, he could also very easily not, and is that worth uh, blowing up your entire budget? I guess that that's that's my worry. And speaking of blowing up budgets, how much should you bid on Gregor Blanco if your draft is this weekend? He's got, what, nine stolen bases with one caught stealing, and he's hitting almost 500 in spring training for San Francisco, and the manager says he's the best guy in camp. Yeah, you know, you know Gregor Blanco is, uh, at this point, Gregor Blanco is not of the 40 man roster but it looks as though he's going to make the team uh and certainly has played well enough in the spring that uh that you would say yeah you know here's a guy who should be on the team i mean he's as hitting close to 500 he's uh been a, a blaze on the base pass nine swipes only one uh, only one caught stealing so i guess we ought to start with the question of who is gregor blanco i mean gregor blanco is 28 years old he's got three years of sort of major league experience uh and we can sort of see a pattern as we look at that um he gets, he gets some walks. The so walk rates are close to 10%. Uh, contact rate is kind of marginal, about 79, 77. We'd like to see it make a little better contact. Uh, and the result is we've, we've got an expected batting average out of Gregor Blanco of 240, 254, 252 over his last three major league seasons. Um, so here's a guy that uh, could hit around 250 and got enough speed to really steal some bases. The question is... Um, You've got some real warning flags. He was not in the majors last year. He was at two AAA stops last year, and his batting averages at those two stops were 203 and I think 196 or something like that. 
So uh, there's a real downside to Gregor Blanco uh, that you need to be aware of. Uh, you remember Sam Fuld from a year ago? How could I forget? I mean, here's a guy who got drafted, uh, picked up on all the kind of waiver claims in, in uh, April as he was running wild. And uh, it seems to me that that may be exactly what we've got in Gregor Blanco. He could start the season ablaze, but uh, once the hit rate god stops smiling on him, uh, he may find himself on the bench uh, and not able to steal much because he's not in the lineup. I, I hear all of that, but something tells me that, that if you look back at Blanco's 2008 season, he was actually a, a $5 player in straight roto and a $7 player in 5x5 five five because he did manage to hit 250 and he stole 13 bases. And depending on how your league shakes out in stolen bases, this guy might be worth a dollar endgame flyer on the expectation and hope that he doesn't play a lot, that he gets a lot of opportunities as a pinch runner, you know, a late late inning defensive replacement, so he doesn't get enough at-bats to kill you. But whatever at-bats he gets, if he draws a few walks, he could steal you 10, 15 bases. If for a buck, that's not bad. No, not at all. And I suspect that's, you know, that's certainly, uh, he may start out um, playing uh, regularly, but you're right. He's the kind of guy coming off the bench as a pinch runner, uh, could steal a few bags and, and maybe not get enough at-bats to kill you in terms of batting average. Stephen Nick Rand, the BaseballHQ.com starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, wrote recently about some end-game picks that he likes, and one of them, and it's hard to believe that anybody likes a pitcher in Colorado because we all remember the days of the balls flying around out there, but he likes Juan Nicasio. Yeah, Juan Nicasio. You know, Juan Nicasio last year had a 4.14 ERA in, uh, in 72 innings at Colorado. Um, seemed to kind of get, got rushed to uh, to Colorado after uh, only 57 innings above above a ball, um, but if you look at beyond that that uh, 4.14 ERA, uh, here's a guy whose expected earned run average was 3.48, uh, pitched extremely well, a, a solid uh, dom rates, striking out almost seven guys per nine innings, excellent control. Uh, here's a guy who really could uh, could surprise and is likely to be available fairly cheaply at the end of your draft. He's going to be very cheap, I suspect, from anybody who remembers him getting hit in the head by that line drive, which knocked him out of the uh, action for the latter part of last year. It was a very scary incident. Is there any concern about health? Do you know, Nick? Uh, not that I've heard of. I mean, he, he should uh, he, he should have a full recovery, I believe, and should be uh, a very high high upside pick. Uh, right now so i think he should uh, do very well uh, uh steven nick ran so that neck injury uh and i haven't heard anything that suggests that that's been uh, been down in spring training and perhaps an even more provocative idea came to us from baseballhq.com columnist doug dennis who covers the bullpens and his end game column he suggested taking a look at right-hander uh, philippe omont of the philadelphia phillies who's never thrown a pitch in the big leagues you know, Philippe Beaumont is likely to start the uh, to start the year uh, in the minor leagues, but uh, certainly the, the Phillies are going to be looking for some setup behind John Papelbon. Um, and and Omont, if you look at our projections, looks as though he could do very well. Here's a guy that's had uh, huge dom rates in the minor leagues. Uh, uh, we're projecting a 10.8 dom rate. Uh, I mean, certainly that's that's very very strong. If he the, the question with Omont, as it is with a lot of hard throwers, is what's his control going to be like? As he uh, as he gets to the majors, and the the one kind of red flag that you see if you look back at his minor league work is kind of a loss of control moving from double A AA to triple A. Uh, I think his triple A uh, control rate was right around five. Uh, so as long as he can keep uh, keep the keep his control once he gets to the majors, 
uh, he should do very well. And he's done pretty well in spring training. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but he has not walked a lot of guys, and he struck out a few. But the question, of course, is, is he facing major league hitters at the, at the end of those, uh, those ball games, or is he facing mainly minor leaguers uh, at the end of a spring training game? I remember Philippe Omont as a real hard thrower, Nick, from when he was in Seattle, and he was a highly rated prospect in the American League. Then, of course, he started moving around in the Cliff Lee deals and so on. So uh, not the kind of guy you're going to look at probably at draft, but certainly a guy to tuck away in the back of your mind or maybe add to your reserve list if your rules allow. Very definitely. A good, a good one-buck pick at the end of the draft. All right, Nick, I'll talk to you again in a week. We'll have some real games to talk about from Japan. Very definitely. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. We're starting to see which guys are going to last and which ones are getting farmed out, Patrick. Yes, and there's been some interesting news here and there around the American League. Perhaps no more interesting news than Andy Pettit announced that he signed a minor league deal. He's going to try to make a comeback with the Yankees, so that raises a couple of questions. First, can Andy Pettit come back at his advanced age, having been out of baseball as long as he has? And second, if he can, what does that mean for the Yankees' rotation, especially Philip Hughes and Freddie Garcia? Well, this is so hard to project because of his age and because he did take a year off. Uh, he did have some groin injuries, but it wasn't an injury-induced year off, so you'd hope he could come back. Logic would say it's a very high-risk move, but if you do have someone who's not going to overvalue him because his name is Andy Pettit, he could be an interesting late-round flyer. His stats in 2010 were very good, 328 ERA, 127 whip, aided by a high strand rate, uh, 77%. His expected ERA was actually 379. He had good command 2.5 which we like to see so definitely Pettit had skills when he retired he retired when he was still retiring batters and his expected ERA has always been right around four so he's not going to be a superstar his whip's going to be about 1.3 to 1.4 his ERA is going to be serviceable in an AL only league he's certainly worth a flyer in a mixed league he's probably not somebody I would touch you have so much risk and you really hope he's going to be another Jamie Moyer type he is that kind of control pitcher keeping the ball down or at least he used to be, his fly ball rate in 2009 and 2010 were 38% each year. Not bad, but for someone like Pettit, who we perceive as a ground ball inducing pitcher, mostly 50% ground ball rate most of his career, it did start to show his age through that fly ball rate, perhaps. And now that raises the question, assuming he does land a spot in the rotation, whether out of spring training or probably more likely a little bit into the season, uh, who gets knocked out? Uh, the leading candidates to lose a spot are Philip Hughes and Freddie Garcia, and Garcia's got a hand injury, so which way does that battle look to shape up? Yeah, I think the Yankees definitely want Hughes to step forward. He's looked real good this spring. His velocity's improved. His control's improved. I think they really want Hughes to step up and take that position. And I definitely would be putting my chips on Hughes. Garcia was sort of filler, and if he's got a hand injury, that means they can stick him on the DL for a little while and wait till they need him. But I think Garcia is certainly going to be the odd man out there. I was also listening to a Yankees game on XM Radio during these uh, spring training games, and they were talking about Phil Hughes having come into camp looking like he was in better shape. And while, of course, that kind of falls into that category, Matt, of spring training noise, it also might be something to think about because sometimes those young players, they get a sense of entitlement or I can't lose my job, I'm too, I'm too famous, I'm too big. And uh, Phil Hughes was a little portly there uh, last year, and it may have contributed. He had a bad back. 
issue as well. So maybe if he's a little more committed to being in shape, maybe he's going to be a, a little bit better at being out there. Well, I think Hughes is you know, eating some humble pie here the last year or two, not performing to the way the expectations are there. And in that market, they're not going to let you rest if you're not performing. And I think he's probably received that wake-up call loud and clear, and that's why he's improved his physical conditioning this winter. And I also believe he was working out at one of those uh, real high-level pro-athlete training camps as well in the off-season. So uh, maybe Philip Hughes might lose a little value with all this Andy Pettit talk, might be a nice guy to grab on, on the spec. We certainly know he has amazing skills uh, in his prime, in his first couple of years there with the Yankees, did very well. So I think that he would certainly be a great guy to buy high, or excuse me, buy at any cost. Down in Kansas City, one of the most reliable pitchers they've had over the last few years and one of the most reliable closers in all of baseball has been Joaquin Soria. But now he's had uh, some elbow problems and the MRI showed ligament damage. This is a guy who's already had Tommy John surgery in the past. This is not good news. And the question is, assuming he can't go, which is almost assured at this point, who do we think is going to be the closer starting the year for the Kansas City Royals? I think the most likely candidate has to be Greg Holland off his 2011 performance. He had a 1.95 expected ERA and a 134 base performance value. Anytime you get triple-digit base performance value, that's what measures all of his skills that we do here at Baseball HQ. Those are things you want to look at. This guy had an amazing whip, really took control of the game, but he's never done it before. And you know how managers like people who've been in that role and had that experience and lurking in the background is Jonathan Broxton, who had some of the most amazing skill sets we've seen in the recent years before he got hurt himself. He's supposedly healthy this spring. He's pitched a couple scoreless innings. He's striking out guys. He's controlling the ball. So if Broxton would be healthy and and look like the Broxton of old, he's probably the guy that would slip in there, even though Holland's skills seem a little more more recently reliable anyway. Yeah, when it comes to choosing a closer, a lot of managers go with the he's he's had the ball in his hand in that uh, situation in the past and and probably overweighted in their consideration. Remember last year, Buck Showalter stuck with Kevin Gregg, who was pretty horrible. Yeah, Gregg really wasn't the answer there, and we want to make sure that, that that doesn't happen here. Some other guys that they may look look at are Tim Collins, a hard-throwing lefty who's just got awful control, so I think that'll keep him, besides being left-handed, that'll keep him out of the mix. The dark horse here is a, a minor leaguer named Kelvin Herrera, who had a great uh, track record through three levels of the minor leagues in 2011. He did get a cup of coffee with the Royals at the end of the year. He did strike out a batter an inning. His ERA was about just over two. So there is another dark horse in there if they want someone who's done it in the minor leagues in Kelvin Herrera. This might be one of those situations, Matt, where you kind of hope that they announce Broxton has the role and then you and then you grab Holland on the cheap and wait for Broxton to fall apart as he has in past years. Yes, and, and just wondering... You know, is that sore elbow? He had elbow surgery in September. Broxton himself did. So how will his elbow hold up to the rigors of closing if he does get that role? So I agree with you 100%. Of course, Greg Holland is what we call a good Lima candidate, um, namely that while his role may not be terrific, his skills are terrific. And a couple more guys that have come up at BaseballHQ.com over the last couple of days are Koji Uehara and Joel Peralta. Great skills. Both of them have very good skills. Uiharas are definitely another tier above that. He struck out almost 12 batters per nine innings last year and only walked 1.2. That's a 9.4 command ratio, and it's actually worse than what he did in 2010 when his command ratio of strikeouts to walks was 11 to 1. Uh, This guy's had a good ERA the last two years. His expected ERA fully supports his skills. 
He did have a low 22% hit rate last year, um, and he is playing in Texas, but last year he had a very high home run per fly ball rate. His adjustment to Texas didn't go so well. He gave up some long balls, and they lost confidence in him. He's a candidate to be dealt, so it's a great time to buy low on Uihara because his skills across the board the last two years have been excellent. Yeah, the one the one concern you mentioned was a high home run to fly ball rate, but he also gives up an awful lot of fly balls. So even if he gets that down under control, the, the home run per fly ball rate regresses back towards 10%. You're still looking at a guy who's susceptible to home runs because he gives up 53 54% fly balls. He definitely is. And uh, even in Baltimore, with those high fly ball rates, he's still been able to post these minuscule ERAs because basically he's all or nothing. That's He's like the three true outcome pitcher. He's except for he doesn't walk anybody. He strikes them out, he keeps them off base, or when he does give up a hit, it, it's a big one. What about Joel Peralta? He's been getting a lot of love online lately. Peralta is one of those guys we think is going to be overvalued in 2012. He had a very low hit rate both in 2010 and 2011, 22%. And he's got a rising fly ball rate each of the last five years, 56% in 2010 and 57% in 2011. His home run per fly ball is not high like Uihara's. It's low. It's 7%. And we know that the norm is usually 10%. So if he normalizes his home run per fly ball rate with all those fly balls out there, it's going to be a, a real detriment, even though he controls the strike zone pretty well. His emergence in 2010 was because he's cut his walks down. He decided to put the ball over the plate and challenge hitters. His strikeout rate went up. His walk rate plummeted. But uh, he's been the beneficiary of this uh, lucky hit rate and a lucky home run per fly ball rate. Yeah, when I look at Peralta's stat line over the last few years, Matt, it looks like more luck than anything else in 2011 because actually his walk rate rebounded a little bit upwards in 11 versus 2010, and his strikeout rate went down, and his command, which had been 5.4, which is excellent, in 2010 actually fell to 3.4, which is still good, but it's the wrong way of a trend. Yeah, and at his age and with his injury history, he's definitely a risk any way you look at it. Uh, I think Peralta's one of those guys that's had his best years behind him. And if you want to go with a leaving middle reliever, while that's an effective strategy, you've got to make sure you're getting superior skills in all facets because they're not going to help you often in saves right away. They're not going to get a lot of wins. They've got to have that great ERA and whip and the nice strikeout per nine innings to give you some strikeouts to, comp- to uh, contribute to your roster. Right, and they also have to give you innings because uh, their their impact on the ratio categories is minimal anyway if they're only getting 65 or 70 innings as relief pitcher in a year. And if they miss you know, four weeks, that means now their innings count goes down to 50 or something like that. It really is hard to affect a 1,000-inning fantasy team when you're only throwing 5% of those innings. Yeah, you have to figure out what the percentage is in the pitching categories and in the hitting ratio categories. When you get a part-time player, you got to make sure you understand their impact is going to be half that of a full-time player sometimes. Yes, or, or even less. And, and the other thing you mentioned, that he might get some saves or any Lima reliever might be in line for saves depending on what happens. In Down in Tampa Bay, Kyle Farnsworth looks pretty solid, but even if he isn't, Madden, the manager Joe Madden down in Tampa has not been shy about rotating that role around to whoever's got the hot hand. So even if something happened to Farnsworth, there's no guarantee that Peralta would be the beneficiary. Yeah, he'll spread that around. He's got some other good live yarns in the bullpen there. Uh, and Farnsworth really did a pretty good job last year. We had called that in our preseason columns and in the first pitch forums that Farnsworth was the guy to watch in that bullpen, and that did play out. On to some prospects. Last year, a couple of 
pretty good name prospects who didn't have such great years. And we'll start in Toronto, where Colby Rasmus came over after a pretty good year for St. Louis the year before. Then he got traded because there were some personality issues between him and Tony Larusa involving uh, Colby Rasmus's dad wanted in on the batting uh, instruction and. That all those kind of uh, side issues, so they dealt him off to Toronto, where he played even less well. What do we think of Colby Rasmus as a bounce back candidate in 2012? Well, we know he has the skills. He displayed a 165 power index in 2010. He's shown plate patience in the past with a 12% walk rate that year and in the first half of 2011. But whatever happened when he went to Toronto, he made Tony Larusso look like a genius because he struggled in several ways. His contact rate fell to 73%. His hit rate fell to 21%, which is a luck factor, but he stopped being patient. He was really pressing. He only walked 5% of the time. That's very unlike Rasmus, who had always had a very good record of plate patience in the majors and minors. Uh, His power was still there. He didn't get a chance to run at all because he wasn't on base very much. So this is a guy where, again, if you're going to pay because his name is Colby Rasmus and he's a great prospect, he's probably going to disappoint you. But if you can get him late in the draft for very cheap, he does have that upside. I mean, you have to look at he's probably going to hit you around 250 and hit 20 homers and steal 10 bags, but he has the potential to do much better or much worse. It depends if he can get his head on straight with a new chance here, a new year. Uh, everyone thought he would thrive when he got out from under Tony Russa. Instead, he really struggled. So we need to see how he's going to adjust here in 2012. Yeah, the BaseballHQ.com projection for Colby Rasmus is 244, 20 and 66 with eight bags. And that does seem kind of like a baseline considering the fact he's got well above average speed in the, in the one teens and his power, as you mentioned, his power index around 160 or so. So it would seem like maybe there's 25, 15 kind of potential here if he can get it all together. But boy, the question about personality and willingness to participate in those kind of things really kind of hangs over this guy. So if it were me, I'd take him, but it would have to be at a pretty substantial discount to his expected rotisserie value of you know eight or nine bucks. Yes, and I think the scouts would say his upside may be even higher than you mentioned. The problem is his contact rate. It was only 68% in 2010, 75% in 2011. That's a wonderful improvement, but the fact that it really went down the second half of 2011, he went to Toronto, uh, this is a guy still trying to put it all together. When he does... He still could emerge a superstar, but for right now, we can't say that year's going to be 2012. There's nothing in the numbers that point in that direction. And the recent uh, BaseballHQ.com analysis also pointed out that he didn't get a lot of stolen base opportunities, largely because you can't steal first, but also because uh, the manager just didn't want him running out there, and that we'll have to see if um, the manager in Toronto wants to loosen the reins a little bit and John Farrell lets him run. Another disappointing hot prospect Last year, Matt was in Seattle. The first baseman, Justin Smoke, who came over as part of the Hall in the Cliff Lee deal. Everybody's expecting some fairly big power out of Justin Smoke, and so far it's been all mirrors and smoke, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, and this guy is, was supposed to be the next Mark Teixeira. He's, again, got great plate patience. His walk rate has been double digits each of his times in the major leagues. But last year in the second half, after having a a nice first half, showing some good power with a 141 power index and a dozen homers. In the second half, he hurt his thumb. His father passed away, and uh, he lost his plate patience down to 8% walk rate. He made less contact. He had a low hit rate all year of only 28% that kind of kept his batting average down. Here's a guy who does show the power. He does show the patience. You expect him to put it all together. It just hasn't happened yet. And in Safeco Field, that's not the easiest place to build a young hitter's confidence. 
Yeah, the the first half, second half split on the power index is really illustrative. I think he was on his way with a 141 in the first half before the injury and his dad's untimely passing, those kind of issues. So if you think this guy is a legitimate 140, 150 power index type of guy, then you're talking about a, a legitimate 25 home run threat, but it's a big park, as you mentioned, and there's some question about hand injuries, how quickly guys can recover from those. So uh, Justin Smoke seems like... Uh, a gamble for a team that can afford to take a gamble, but maybe not a gamble for a team that has aspirations to finish in the money or to look for a pennant. Yeah, this is an end gamer. He's a great guy to fill out your corner infield position. First base gets scarce quickly this year, and Smoke be one of those guys towards the end to take a flyer on and, and hope that he catches the smoke catches fire, I guess. Uh, he certainly has shown the skills. If he can just improve his contact rate, similar to Rasmus here, 75% contact rate, he's got to get that up if he's going to improve his batting average. All right, Matt, you have your Market Pulse commentary a little later on in the show. Thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time as we approach opening day. Can't wait, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Todd Zola of Masters Ball comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. I'm also the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the Analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleased now to be joined by Lord Zola. We call him Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. And Todd, I'd like to start with a recent column you wrote at Masters Ball where you had a very accurate response to the experts who advise fantasy owners to wait on starting pitching because starting pitching is better than it used to be. So you can get a pitcher whose ERA and whip stats would have been third round five years ago, and you can get them in the sixth round now. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I need to preface this by... Uh, it's all league contextual, and um, it, it still it still matters on the on the size of your league and the quality of the the, the way that the, the the owners do the pitching analysis. But the concept is pretty. I mean, it, it can be summed up in three words: value is relative. Uh, pitching is just better, top to bottom. Um, the, the first place team in your league, the 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 ERA point, you know, the ERA total that they're going to get this year. Is going to be lower than it was in 2008. It's just in the second, the third, and the fourth place team all the way down the line. So there's sort of two 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 ideas that you need to keep in mind when when you say pitching is deeper. I can wait on pitching. You know, the tenth, the twentieth, the thirtieth, the fortieth best pitcher, their stats are better than they were in 2008, but the amount of impact they have to help your fantasy team is the same. The fortieth best pitcher is helping your team as much as the 40th best pitcher did three or four or five years ago. 
but you know, it's just ERA is now you know three six instead of three eight, something like that. So you can't just eyeball an ERA and say and have in your mind what kind of a pitcher he is because it's relative to the overall field. I think that's what people are doing now is they're taking a look at, at you know look at look at you know look at Brandon McCarthy. Look what his ERA is. You can look how late you can get him. Well, it, it's true, but he's not helping you as much as he did a, as a three eight ERA did a few years ago. The other aspect of it is that we are, as a sort of community, a lot better at evaluating pitching. Uh, and I think this sort of this also has to do with ties into a lot of us are now doing online drafting and they're presetting ranks online, so everything is being set a little bit cleaner as far as where pitchers should go. They're not necessarily ranking them on last year's ERA. They're ranking them on where we think they'll be this year, fleshing out all the you know, the luck factors, so to speak. Uh, so you're no longer able to get James Shields, as an example, that, that's near and dear to the HQ crowd. James Shields in the 15th round because he's no longer being ranked there by a lot of people. Uh, so it's hard. The other reason for, for waiting on pitching was it wasn't so much to get cheap pitching, but was to get pitching on get good pitching on the cheap. And there's just less of those diamond in the roughs available now because they're no longer ranked. They're being more properly ranked, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so it's more difficult to assemble the staff that you need to win by waiting because there are fewer of those uh, Lima type, if you will, pitchers because they're now being properly scored and evaluated. Yeah, and that's doubly true on on leagues where the uh, when you draft online, the system keeps popping up the most valuable guy, which kind of must prove uh, some kind of prompt to a lot of drafters to say, oh, I wouldn't have thought that James Shields should be that highly rated, but it's, and even if you don't believe it, you see it with your eyes on the screen and say, well, the system seems to think he's that high, and if I want a guy of this caliber, then I better at least think about it now. And that makes me think, uh, Todd, of another question that we hear an awful lot on various uh, forums, on the Facebook page and stuff, which is, is it safe to draft a, a top pitcher in an early round of a draft or to spend $32, $33 on a Verlander or a Kershaw or a Roy Halladay? I think it is. It's, it's still how you're going to construct your entire roster. I mean, people hear me give this speech, and they, the takeaway message is, Ola says, draft Halladay and Verlander and Kershaw with your first three picks. That's not, not really what I'm saying. Um, I'm saying don't, don't wait to the eighth or ninth round. Uh, and make and, and try to get you know Giovanni Gallardo as your first starter anymore either. Uh, I I don't personally draft the Verlanders and the Holidays in the first two rounds, but I'm not going to scorn anybody that does because I think the other you know there's, it's always there's always another side to the story. You know you, the idea the, the point being that your hitting is now weaker. At this point, hitting is, it's almost not as if you know drafting better hitters. You're, on the hitting side, it's almost drafting hitters that don't get hurt. So if you can balance taking your Hallidays and your Verlanders in the first and second round by by minimizing or mitigating the injury risk later on in the draft and not being so susceptible to one of you know I think one of every three players goes on a DL, uh, then I think you can uh, draft your Hallidays or your Verlanders 
uh, your Kershaws early uh, and still be successful. It's not. I, I'm, I'm not doing it yet. I'm still looking for Jared Weaver. That sort of guy is my first pitcher a few rounds later. But I don't. I don't scorn anybody or make fun of anybody that does. Not, at least not in the way that we used to, and it seemed like a particularly crazy idea. Todd, uh, in another one of your columns on mastersball.com, you wrote about your participation in an all-time draft, and this is a really interesting concept. You draft particular player seasons since 1901. So, for example, you could say, I want uh, Ricky Henderson's season from 1986 or whatever, and as soon as that player season is gone, all that player seasons are gone, so you're trying to... Uh, to take advantage of getting a guy off the board while getting his best season. Your first player rostered was Ty Cobb in 1911, and listen to this line. He had a 420 average, 100 and 100, over 100 each run scored in, in RBIs, and 83 stolen bases, but only eight home runs. That kind of caused you to rebalance things and uh, caused a bit of a frustrating power chase. Maybe you could explain what happened in a bit of detail and how you think it applies to owners in regular drafts that are taking place this year. What happened was, you know, my, my value system, he, he came out really, really high. And I took a look, and my, my thought process was, um, look at all the steals I get, look at all the batting average I get, and I'm not giving away too much in the RBIs and the runs. Uh, I am giving away the homers. Um, you know, this is like the old Ichiro Suzuki argument. Later on in the draft, I can pick up Adam Dunn, and I, if I get them both, you know, a little bit of a discount, when you add their stats together, I end up getting, you know, two players of, you know, 30, 30 players, whatever, and, you know, end up ahead of the game. So that was sort of my thinking at the time was, great, I got this huge batting average buffer, and I'm so far ahead, and I don't have to worry about steals. Um, you know, but what my, my mistake was, you know, I'm going to draft the Louis Gonzalez season and the Mark McGuire season and the Davey Johnson season. And I had them ranked according to my list, but of course, not everybody's using my list and they're doing their own rankings and they're probably not as particular and they're doing it more, you know, this is a draft being done in, in August and it's more intuitive and we're just having fun posting the, the players and their Wikipedia page. So they probably didn't whip up the Excel spreadsheet like I did. And I found all these power seasons were going earlier than, again, air quotes, than they should have been. So I was never able to make up for the power. Uh, and, and, and so I, I was, this actually began, I made, you know, me and my catchphrases, uh, made a catchphrase up how I like to draft. I call it choose, not chase. Uh, and so how it relates to regular drafts is, I mean, I just sort of mentioned each row. You don't want to make a pick where you are sort of pigeonholed into having to chase a particular category or position because in a draft, you just don't know that it's going to be there for you. In an auction, I might be more willing to purchase a high batting average guy than purchase, um, you know, a low batting average high power guy because I, you know, if I want to, I just say $1 more. In a draft, if they don't fall to you, you could be in trouble. And the more picks that you are making um, because you want to and not because you have to, the better chance of, of putting more talent on your roster. So the kind of lesson I learned, it sort of reinforced how to, uh, how to set your roster up at the beginning. You know, the old line, you can't win a league in the first three or four rounds, but you can certainly lose it. Well, I don't know if I can win it in the first three or four rounds, but I can certainly make my job easier for the next 15 rounds by getting a certain distribution of players and distribution of statistics early so that opens up 
the inventory later that I'm able to, you know, I have the entire inventory. You know, I, Michael Bourne, you know, great player, lots of steals. Um, you know, if if you take Michael Bourne in the third, fourth, or fifth round, you know, Brett Gardner is no longer part of your inventory. Uh, so as, as sort of a, you know, one example to, you know, very simplistic example to, to show the entire point, but that's sort of the idea is, is to have everybody at your ready so everybody can help you uh, and you just have a better chance of getting a good player when it's your turn. And the flip side of that, Todd, seems to be if you get into that situation, maybe tactically you have to say, I thought my team was going to be balanced as far as the categories go across, but because of the first pick that I got, because of the way the cookies crumbled, however it is, I'm going to adjust on the fly, and I'm going to say, okay, my Ty Cobb uh, 1911 season gives me this huge batting average advantage and a pretty good head start on stolen bases. I'm going to start maximizing those categories and find more guys like that and maybe not worry about home runs, not exactly punting the category, but not exactly worrying about it either. Right. It all depends now. I mean, this is a league where we knew the stats, and it was a little different story because the standings are going to be much more tightly bunched. Um, but sure, if it, it, it sort of comes, this, this kind of goes back to that whole, the whole point about target drafting is if, I, if you take a lot of stolen bases early, do you then especially if it's a trading league, and you can trade, you know, if you pick, I just used the Gardner thing. If, if Gardner's at a discount and you're allowed to trade, maybe you do just draft Brett Gardner, and, and, and it may, you know, trade either Bourne or Gardner for a power hitter. Um, I think in, I, in my mind, I sometimes become, I, the word I made, NFB-centric using the National Fantasy Baseball Championship, but there's no trading. So much of my early work is done, personal work is done with the NFBC, that I forget that a lot of you guys out there are allowed to trade. <laughs> so when we say, you know, draft balance, uh, you know, the old thing used to be uh, draft draft value trade for balance. In these no-trade leagues, you pretty much have to, you know, draft your balance. Um, so I think it does matter. But my mistake in that league was in, in continuing to chase the speed, uh, I'm sorry, the power, and just not getting anything as opposed to, you know, doing a modified Sweeney at that point and just blowing away home runs and, and RBIs and trying to maximize my points. I mean, that's a little more difficult in a Roto League where you don't know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, the categories aren't going to be as bunched. But I guess the, the take-home message there is don't, you know, if there's a, you know, if there's a value pick there and you can trade, don't worry as much about it. Um, you know, get the value, load up on a particular category, and then, you know, trade uh, later on in the year from the excess to uh, to improve its efficiency. Before we move on, Todd, do you remember which player season was first overall? I think it was Babe Ruth, and there was a, uh, oh, I, I could call it up, but the, a pitch, you know, some of the some of the pitchers from like 1900 that were just, you know, 46 wins and 15 saves. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating uh, draft just to be in for the fun of it because I was saying we were, we're posting on the on message board the Wikipedia page and and their baseball cards and uh, and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, you, you know, from it was a great time killer back in uh, back in October. Actually, just to, to to sort of mention, um, this is a concept that the the people at the Roto Junkie bullpen have been doing for years. Uh, that this was this was sort of done on the NFBC board as a one time thing. These guys have made an art of it, uh, of these sorts of drafts. 
uh, and they have a great time every off season. So it's not a it's a it's not a unique thing. It's it's, it's been done, and uh, you know it was a great way to just to get 15 people together and you know get to know somebody else because of uh, I didn't know you were a Met fan. I didn't know that you uh, I didn't know you knew the game. You know that you were a student of the game. That sort of thing. It was a great way to get out of the fan. You know, get out of the Babbitt for a while and just have some fun. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. And, Todd, uh, you wrote a very interesting column recently about return on investment in drafts, which kind of came down on the side of focusing on reliability in the early rounds because you want to lock in the value because as you go down the draft, your expected returns get smaller and smaller and sometimes even turn negative. Could you explain that process and how you came to the conclusion that Robinson Cano could be taken as high as fifth overall, even though there were more players that had higher value at that point? It's a concept that I've talked about and I know Ron's talked about as well, how if you graph a draft, uh, it's a nonlinear distribution. I think one of the better ways to think about it is is like the, the the football rookie draft. And when you hear about trades being made, you know it, you, it, it's not just a simple flipping of rounds. That there's sort of a point system put per draft pick, and they try to figure out how to even out the points because it's nonlinear. Well, it's the same way in a baseball draft, or the way that our our conventional value systems put values on players. It's the players at the top have a, a, a bigger delta in their talent on their potential value and as you as you go down that, that that delta gets smaller and then as you proceed through the rounds the slope is almost flat um, between between the rounds so the you know in the seventh or eighth round the, the the second pick and the eighth pick or ninth pick they're basically the same player as far as potential goes whereas in the first and second round there's a there's a pretty significant delta between the second and eighth player. Um, this sort of disappears around the fourth round of most drafts. So then if you, if you put that put that on one half of the page, then the other half of the page say, well, you know, it is a draft, it is a snake draft, and I'm going, you know, going progressively down. So if you then take the money that, I know it's a draft, but if you convert it to auction values, if you then sort of distribute the money that would be available and make it, go progressively linearly down and then match that up spot for spot against the normal distribution of how a dollar value would put it, you sort of see at the beginning of the draft is where, you know, your expected, you know, return of investment. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but the first the first pick's usually worth about 45 bucks, And in this system, it was worth like 20 or $25, something like that. Uh, this is where you want to get your big return of investment. You don't want to take advantage of the fact that you have an early pick. So it's so sort of the takeaway to me here was uh, it's where where I where I can at least have that potential huge return of investment sitting in front of my face. I want to maximize my opportunity to get it. And I think you know it's sort of intuitive. You you take less. We've been saying for years you take less risks at the top. But sometimes when you see numbers, at least for some of us. It helps us reinforce that point. So then, then you know, that brings in the whole argument about you know who's more reliable in the first round. Uh, you know, injury risk, performance risks. Uh, you know that that sort of thing. You know, you know is, is Matt Kemp uh, in the in the batting average of balls in play is that going to fall? Uh, that sort of thing. You know, and Robinson Cano. You can put a 
you can put his stats and you can put I call it a table stats because they're so they're so level you can put a table on top of the stats, you put a ball on top of that table and that ball's not gonna roll because it's so level. <laughs> it's so flat. Uh so you know, who's a better pick early on? I don't know that I wanna, you know, necessarily get the first you know, if you take the third player overall, he may be the seventh ranked player, but the chances of him being the seventh ranked player are are really, really good. So sometimes you want to jump guys up in the first round because of that. Um, was sort of the take home message I got from this little this little study. And Robinson Cano being this uh ideal of a very reliable player, very dependable level of stats. So that's how you came to this conclusion that maybe he's he could be jumped in that fashion. But at labor, when you did your mixed draft, you had the seventh pick. There was Robinson Cano sitting there, and you took Troy Tulowitzki instead, who seems to be a somewhat more risky proposition. Why did you decide to basically uh, not do what you had determined was a, was a wise move? Uh, well, when I said fifth, I actually had Tulowitzki as one of the four that went ahead of him. Um, it is. It's. it's there, there are two things that go into it. Um, the first being we, we, we talked tiers a little earlier. I'm more. There are other second basemen, or there are more second basemen than there are shortstops that I am comfortable taking, or feel I will be able to take at their market value later on in the draft. So taking Cano, I mean, you still have your middle spot and you still have your utility, but it, it, it taking him so early. In theory, at least on my my mind, the way I'm looking at things, it, 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 it takes away some of the players that I feel I'm going to get at value later. Uh, you know, so then you know, looking specifically at Tulowitzki, the you know he hasn't played you know 155 games. Um, this, it's never been the skills are never in question. You know, you prorate the skills out, you know, it's going to be fine. So the rationale is sort of his injuries have been more fluke than than anything else, uh, maybe this is the year that he doesn't jam his finger, he doesn't get hit pitch on an elbow, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I'm still sometimes I, sometimes I still think about that pick, and I you know why didn't I just go with Cano? Uh, but it, it almost was at the time though it was almost a uh, geez I didn't even think I'd have to even worry about Tulowitzki at this point. Um, so it may just have been sort of a on the spot, you know, sometimes when you're asked a question, you don't know the answer until you're actually faced with that question for real as opposed to hypothetical. Uh, and it's really easy on my, on my, on my uh, article to say I take Robinson Cano when you're faced with it. <laughs> you, don't, you know, he's there because if they both are going to play 160 games, Tulowitzki is going to have better numbers. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I made this decision. And actually... It turns out that I got one of my guys, Brandon Phillips, in the fourth, where I like him. So I was able to get the second baseman that I, or one of them that I sort of anticipated that I could. So now I'm just crossing my fingers that Tulo stays healthy. Also in your labor draft, uh, which was a mixed league straight draft, you liked Ricky Romero of Toronto enough to take him in round eight. What do you like about Ricky Romero? I like, I've been following, I've got Romero on my XFL team, so I've sort of been following him. Uh, I like to watch pitchers that I have, you know, if he's pitching and, uh, and I'm not doing anything, I'll, I'll watch his game because I've got him sort of thing. And the XFL is a league that I like, you know, that I'll follow my players closer than some of the other leagues. Um, you know, it's it's one of those statistical analysis conundrums where, you know, if, if a guy, you know, if, if you see a pattern 5-4-3, what's the next number? 
Is it two, or is it an average of five, four, and three? That's sort of way his walk rate has been going down steadily every year. And, you know, when you plug it in your engine, your engine's going to regress, and it's going to tell you that walk rate is going to be the average rate. But, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, just as we'd like to say the players are human, you know, we're, we're human too. The players are predict, you know, the prognosticators. He's a guy that I'm willing to overrun my system and say that I think the walk rate is not going to either continue, it's going to stay where it is, or it's going to be better. Uh, I love, you know, and I know that, you know, we talk about this on another day, that ground ball pitching isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but the fact is he's a, a big ground ball pitcher, which I think in his park is, is helpful. Um, and I just see him as a guy that's growing, and I'm not worried, you know, he's doing what he's been doing in the AL East for all these years, so the whole, oh, I don't want him to go to the AL East. Well, the numbers he's put up have been in the AL East. They think he's only getting it better because of the AL East. Uh, just see him as a guy that uh, is probably, I think we talked about it too, that over half the players one year to the next regress. I think he could be in that 30% that gets better the following year. And uh, I don't make a whole lot of subjective calls on a year-to-year basis, but he's one of them this year that I think, uh, and now we can talk about how his stats last year, the year rate didn't match up to his component stats, you know, all over the place. But I'm sort of, you know, big picture, I still see him as a guy that's improving skills-wise and uh, a guy with all those strikeouts I, I don't mind at all putting on my staff. You also took uh, Henderson Alvarez of the Blue Jays, and you said in your uh, analysis on Masters Ball that you thought you probably could have got him a round or two later. It was fairly downdraft anyway, but you really wanted to be sure to get him, so you took him a round or two early. Why the love for Henderson Alvarez? Well, this is, I mean, everything is in, it's in context. Uh, it's at the, this is at the end what I call the, the fungible portion of the term, and especially the, the rules that we had are our standard rules now. Uh, where, you know, you can put a guy on the bench and, and, and put him back in your lineup. This is where I don't take a lot of chances early, but I try to take my chances later. Uh, so, you know, a guy that when he's pitching well or certain matchups, I can put him on my, on my you know, two-start weeks, put him in there. I just love his, uh, you know, he's not he's not striking out, you know, not a huge K rate, but he just he doesn't walk anybody. And he, another, he does have a pretty decent ground ball rate. Um, which which helps I think in his in his particular park, and I think that people are shying away from him because of Toronto and because of the AL East. Uh, so I just I think that that with his his uh, his K to BB in particular, we'll talk about that because neither if this K nine isn't all that great. I think he can can put up some pretty decent uh, some pretty decent numbers in the back end of a mixed rotation. And, you know, I, I think even in an AL-only league, he's a guy that you can probably, you know, the old the old Mark Burley type, so to speak, that he's not going to get as many strikeouts, but he's going to get you the innings that you need and keep your ratios in line. And he just, uh, I think that, you know, in Toronto, not, you know, they're not really known for their, their bringing up of, of stud young pitchers, so to speak. So I think he's flying under the radar a bit as well. 
and they're getting better at it. Todd, you also gambled that Grant Balfour would get the saves in Oakland, and sure enough, just this week uh, they've announced that Grant Balfour will open the season at least as the closer. Uh, what was it that you liked about Grant Balfour going in, and what is it uh, your likelihood, do you think, uh, that he keeps the job for the whole season? Well, to be fair, I also thought that David Carpenter was going to be getting the saves in Houston. So, uh, you know, 50-50 there. Um, all along, I mean, I, I didn't see, I mean, it was, it was Balfour, Flint, I know they got a whole bunch of other names. I just felt that his, his he's kind of like the old, you know, the Kyle Farnsworth sort of, that you don't, you see his name and you kind of go, but when you really look at the numbers, they're a whole lot better than you may have think they were, and that the walk rate isn't that bad, and he, and he does have a good strikeout rate. Um, and, and Fuentes, I thought the whole, you know, the whole lefty-righty dynamic, I thought was, uh, was, was in Balfour's favor. And between the two of them, if I'm going to use it, I'm gonna, if I'm going to keep a guy on my roster, if he's not closing, I'd prefer to have Balfour. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's as simple as that. Uh, and I actually, I'm pretty, I, I don't know if he's going to, He's going to get the first save, whether he gets the second or third or the thirtieth. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I do have him on quite a few teams as my speculative third closer sort of guy in, in, in mixed leagues. So I was pretty happy to hear that decision because previous to that, we heard DeFuentes was in the lead. Uh, so the fact that he's uh, got it, I just I think he's quietly got. I think when you see his name, you have a certain perception, but it changes when you actually take a look at the numbers in the back of the baseball card. They're a lot better than you may realize. Baseball HQ Radio talking with Todd Zola from MastersBall.com. And Todd, other than the guys we've already mentioned, let's wrap up with uh, some player suggestions from uh, the Lord Zola himself, uh, a sleeper hitter in uh, the American League. Who do you like? I'm kind of torn. I think I think everybody's on Lorenzo Cain at this point, so I'm not going to say Lorenzo Cain. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Mike Carr of Seattle. And it's sort of a selfish reason of mentioning this, I think something else that I, in general, that we don't sort of do well enough is understand park effects. And we think Seattle, uh, and we think, uh-oh, you know, Mike Carp, forget it, no more power. But what we don't realize is that, it, that there's a handedness to park effects. And uh, Safeco crunches, crunches power one side, but doesn't crunch it the other. And, and Carp's on the good side. As a, as a, as a uh, left-handed hitter, uh, right field is, 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 is plays neutral, so it's not so bad. I mean, it's not great, but it's not this 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 this, this pitcher's haven to to, uh, to to right field. So I think some of the power is real. So if people are off of Cart because he can't do it again because he's in Seattle, uh, I think he's a great guy for your corner for your fourth or fifth outfield position in mixed leagues uh, because of the fact that his power could sustain and safe go not so bad. Uh, the National League, um, guy like, I think, is Brian Bogusevich. And, um, you know, this this would have looked a lot better yesterday before they traded Bourgeois, but I've been on Bogusevich uh, pretty much all year as far as, a, all, all spring, as far as a late outfielder to get you some speed. He has sort of a similar profile as Bourgeois, and now that, now that Bourgeois is traded to Kansas City, it's pretty obvious that Bogusevich is the guy. Um but I think he's a, he's a guy who's not going to hurt your batting average too much, or not going to hurt your batting average, and he's going to get you, you know, a 50 steal guy, a 25 to 30 steal guy. 
And, you know, you know, we can joke all we want about Houston, um, but they're still going to put up stats. And uh, he's a guy I like in the outfield if you miss some speed early to, to pick up a little speed late without hurting your average too much. And before we move on to pitchers, Todd, the trade of Bourgeois to Kansas City, does that have any uh, cascading effect that maybe affects Lorenzo Cain and some of those other semi-sleeper outfielders in Kansas City? I don't know. I think it kills Jared Dyson. Uh, I don't know. Um, because Bourgeois also dabbles in the infield, and they now have a, you know the second base situation is a still a little bit in flux with Johnny Giapatella and Chris Getz. Does this actually put Bourgeois in that? instance now. I think, it was, I think it was just Kansas City building up their depth a little bit. How about a sleeper pitcher from each league? We sort of talked about Alvarez. Was sort of, would, would, have been my, uh, would have been my AL guy. Hmm. Uh, pitching in the NL. I'm not even... It's so hard at this point to, uh, to come up with who, who's, a, who's a sleeper and you know, who's not because it's in your head. They're, they are what they are at this point. How about uh, uh, Jonathan Knees? Is he still qualifies as a sleeper? Do you... uh, well, that's the, I guess that's part of my difficulty. Is I think he does, but I, I think he, I think people that I'm drafting with are on him. I mean, you know, the whole defenses are being moved in. They're not being moved in that much. Yeah, it's still going to be a pitcher's park. He's another guy like like Romero that I'm willing to at, feel at least that his gains are going to be sustained and not give back some of his gains that he's made skills-wise. I don't know that he's going to improve, but I think I think I don't know that he's going to regress either. So he's actually he's actually a guy I have in a couple of sim leagues uh, just because in sim leagues they don't care that you play for the Mets and aren't going to get wins. They just go by your numbers. So he's a nice, I thought he was a nice guy to get in a, in a score sheet in a, in, a, in a stratomatic league for that reason. On the flip side, Todd, give us one hitter either league who's just going to be a big bust in 2012, not come close to returning value. Well, big bust, I don't know. But a guy that mentioned Kansas City before, a guy that, that I'm going to, I don't think he's going to return what he did is Alex Gordon. And people are really quick to knock Matt Kemp down because of the season he had. Well, Gordon had a Matt Kemp season, but, you know, to a lesser, a lesser degree. Um, but yet, you know, people are still are not are not being as hard on Gordon as they are on Kemp. As the ability to repeat, Gordon did or didn't do a whole lot different last year, other than a really high bat, a batting average, and balls in play. You know, we like to say things like he, he was healthy and he had a, had a position and he was in leadoff. But you take all that away, his bat was real high last year, and I don't know that he can sustain it. He didn't strike out that many fewer times. His power is up a little bit. So I, I think that I don't think he's a 300 hitter. I don't think he's a 2020 guy. If 15-15 is, is a bust when you expect 2020, I think, you know, 270, 15-15 is supposed to 300, 2020. I don't know if that's a bust nowadays, but to me it's, it's a disappointment, and I think that's what he's going to be is a disappointment for those that are expecting last year's numbers. You mentioned Matt Kemp more than once while we've been talking, including just now. And, and Todd, I'm wondering, do you think that he's going to come close to returning the likely $40 that he's going to command at an auction and a top first-round pick? Yeah, I think he's still going to be good. I think he's more 2011 than he is 2010. But as far as you know, putting that whole reliability, I, I still felt that 
guys like Pujols and Cabrera, and, and and now I can say Ryan Braun are more reliable than, than Matt Kemp. Uh, I don't know that I'd take Kemp first, but I don't think I'd let him slide much past fourth or fifth either. At some point, you have to make that decision. But, um, you know, he's got he's got the, the profile to be able to sustain a higher batting average in balls and plays. He's, he hits the ball hard, and he's fast. So he can, you know, he can get more of those hard-hit balls in play, and, and when he doesn't hit it so hard, he can beat them out. Uh, so it's not as if it's a complete fluke, um, but he, he, the, the, the strikeout rate there as well. I mean, if I if I see a skills improvement, I, I really want to see I want to see more fewer strikeouts and more walks before I really think everything else is real. And didn't see a whole lot of that, and uh, so I'm a little bit leery that he's going to be. I think everybody's a little leery that he's going to repeat. But I think the interesting thing with Kemp is people are saying. You know, don't take Braun. You lost Fielder. You lost, uh, you know, don't take Ryan Braun. He's got no one there. Take a look who Matt Kemp is here. And, and, and Fielder's lineup is at least as good as Braun's. Uh, uh, sorry, Braun's lineup is at least as good as Kemp last year. So the whole argument about dropping Braun uh, because he's got no one around him, that sort of thing. Well, Kemp was able to do what he did last year with that line. So that's, to me, that's not a reason to drop Braun. And how about a pitcher? A guy's going to go for way more than he should. A uh, pitcher that's going to go for way more than he should. You know, I'm a little bit leery of David Price. Um, I don't know how to explain it that well, but I think there's a lot of there's some weird weirdness going on with those numbers that I that I can't that I can't quite explain. So when I get to that tier of of the Price and the and the Lester's and the and the Weavers. I, I sort of, in my mind, I, I, I take somebody else. Um, I wish I could point to it. I wish I could explain it a little bit better. But he's a guy that I'm just a little bit leery of. You know, I'm going to answer my own question, Todd, and I'm going to stay in Tampa Bay, but I just don't see Matt Moore uh, as a really good bet to return the kind of money that he's going to command. Uh, he's he's going in a lot of mock drafts ahead of established players like James Shields on his own team and guys of that caliber. And what what has he got, 10 big league innings in his entire career? I mean, I know he's got skills. We've seen them in the minor leagues and in that one uh, start that he had in the big leagues. But holy cow, Matt Moore seems to be getting really overdrafted. Well, you know, yes, and you can say the same thing about Lowry and Hosmer and Jennings and the hitters. I think I'm, I'm not at this point, I think it brings kind of force to um, you know, these guys got the slightest hangnail. They're, they're going to, they're not going to pick. I mean, this is their investment. Uh, so, after on you know, 200 innings, and because the big thing was there's no, there's no innings cap on Matt Moore. Well, that doesn't mean that they're not going to, you know, temper his innings when they can, or if he's got a little bit of a twinge, or if it rained the day before. They're not going. You know, they're not going. They're going to put Wade Davis on the mound as a sixth starter and not have Matt Moore. You know, be subject to the wet mound or something. Uh, so I, I don't know that he might not get the innings that that you might expect if you get him as your. I like to think of him as, as, as a, you know first, second, third on a on a mixed staff. I'm okay with him as my third starter on a mixed staff. I'm not so okay with him as my second starter on a mixed staff, and I, that's where he's being put. A lot of times in mixed leagues is number two starter, um, so you know it's sort of. I'm okay with Lowry 
in the fifth or sixth round. I'm not okay with him in the third or fourth. That's sort of the, the sort of the analogy, you know, that that sort of thing as far as more goes. Um, I think I think sometimes with that analysis we sort of go too much on the on the he's young, he can't do it. But I you know I, I agree he needs to do a little bit more. But I think some people over penalize a little bit, uh, you know, because of that as well. When all the scouts are so raving, uh, I'm a, I'm a little more cognizant or, or give more credibility to a to a pitcher when scouts say how good he is as opposed to a hitter. So that I think when you've got the ball and you're throwing it, you're controlling it. As the hitter, when you still have to make contact with that thrown ball, um, I think this, you still need to prove me that you can do it, even though the scouts say you can. If a scout says he's got great stuff, I believe it. If a scout says he can get a great swing, I still want to. I want still want to see him hit the ball. So on that end of it, I'm a little bit more optimistic about Matt Moore because some people I really trust tell me how good he is. So, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Todd, thanks very much for doing this. Give us some information about the Masters Ball site, and you're also writing for ESPN. Well, real quick, I'm doing some consulting for ESPN. Uh, I helped out with their, their, their draft their draft kit, doing some of the projections and the profiles, uh, and I'm also writing for the Insider, their, their subscription-based content uh, it's, uh, on a, on the, during the spring, and then in Tell Wars, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to see if we write during the season, so it's sort of a on a freelance basis for the SPN, but on but that at home at Masters Ball, uh, we're you know we're in the middle of the the drafting season. Um, I'm primarily responsible for the content for our platinum subscription, uh, where we get the projections and the profiles and all sorts of Excel tools and minor league lists and uh, in, a, in a message board where we promise that we get you an answer uh, and and that sort of thing. And we have a, our own little draft software that we've got. It's not, it's not as good as some of the other ones out there, but it, it does the job for sure. Um, and, you know, we're updating, actually, as almost doing the, doing getting ready for this weekend's drafts and uh, the, the tiers, the color-coded tiers, all that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's uh, don't necessarily have the information about the news and the current events, but we'll give you what you need or another opinion on what you need as far as player analysis and where to put them and some strategies on on how to put your team together. Fantastic, Todd. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you during the season as well. Excellent, Patrick. Good to talk to you again. That's Todd Zola from MastersBall.com. Our regular commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a belt. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes, and leading off the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Atlanta shortstop prospect Tyler Pasternicki. The Atlanta Braves' Tyler Pasternicki has gotten off to a very slow start this spring. With two weeks left to go in spring training, the 22-year-old shortstop is hitting just 140 with no extra base hits and 43 at-bats. 
Pasternicki had a solid season in 2011, hitting 314 with a 359 on base percentage and a 414 slugging percentage. He had 15 doubles, 7 home runs, and 27 stolen bases between double and triple A, and it was widely assumed that he'd be handed the opening day job in Atlanta. Pasternicki doesn't have much power, and his 414 slugging percentage last year marked a career high, but he is a solid defender with good plate discipline and above average speed. Pasternicki has played so poorly this spring that the media has begun to speculate that he might lose the starting job to fellow prospect Andleton Simmons. Long term, the 22-year-old Simmons is a better defender and has more offensive upside, but Simmons spent all of 2011 at high A in the Carolina League and clearly needs additional development time before he's ready for the majors. In addition, Simmons, who got off to a quick start this spring, has slumped of late and himself is hitting only 200 with one extra base hit this spring. At this point, the Braves, who chose not to be active in the free agent market, have few in-house options. For those drafting over the next several weeks, keep an eye on this situation as it could change quickly. But if the Braves decide to stand pat, Pastor Nicky could be a nice bargain on draft day and has the speed to earn double-digit profits if he can regain his confidence and find his swing. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring, Rob Gordon has organizational reports and other scouting columns, and Jeremy Deloney reports on top prospects. This week, Rob and Jeremy are working their way through the top prospects by position, looking at outfielders. In season, they have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising young stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the market pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about the new sleepers. Sleepers. Everybody wants to know your sleepers. They want to know where they can make their maximum profit for the least amount of investment. Each year at Baseball HQ this time of year, we produce the Baseball HQ all-value team in the market pulse column. We try to spend about $100 to give you a full roster of players and therefore a $160 to go fill out the top of the roster, buying three good players to really anchor your squad, knowing that these great values exist later on in the draft. It's always been a very successful exercise for us. We've been able to make lots of money each year with the picks we've made. But things have changed a little bit each year as more industry knowledge is out there whether it be satellite radio, more experienced players who know where to go get more information, more websites, better analysis, people learning from their losing ways. Whatever the source, people are more knowledgeable playing this game than ever. And that makes sleepers and values more hard to find than ever. In fact, when we look at our 2012 all-value team, Instead of a bunch of one, two, and three dollar sleepers that you hope to return six or seven dollars, we've actually found that the best values are now in the middle of the draft. Everybody knows about your sleepers. Sleepers are very high risk propositions. The best values now in the 2012 all value team are in the middle. The average player on the all value team this year is nine dollars, twice what it was in the past several years we've done this exercise. $9, who do you get? Maybe a Martin Prado or a Yadier Molina. Our biggest profit source is actually the most expensive player on the team, Michael Bourne, who will cost us about $20 in a 15-team mixed league, 
but we have projected to return $31 for an $11 profit. So the biggest profits are no longer at the bottom of the draft. Now they're in the middle. And you need to do the research to figure out which players to target to maximize your profits on draft day. For Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle writes columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics regularly at BaseballHQ.com. This week he does have his 2012 all-value team. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about questions from the First Pitch Forums. Our First Pitch Forum series completed its 2012 run a few weeks ago. At the end of each event, we have an open Q&A session. This is the opportunity for attendees to get their own questions answered. This year's program ran a bit long, and we had to cut back on the Q&As, so I thought I'd devote one edition of Master Notes to some questions we passed on that were submitted in advance. First, a standard one. Do you pick a pitcher in the first round? I don't, mostly because I believe it is important to accumulate counting stats in the first few rounds. Batters provide more of those. But some people do draft pitching early. I suppose the thought process is that at least a few pitchers will finish the season with first-round caliber value. However, check out the track record. Last year, five pitchers finished that high. Justin Verlander, Clayton Kershaw, Roy Halladay, Cliff Lee, and Jared Weaver. In 2010, three pitchers finished that high. Halladay again, Adam Wainwright, and Felix Hernandez. In 2009, three pitchers again finished with first-round value. Tim Lincecum, Dan Harron, and Zach Greinke. In 08, only two, Halliday and CeCe Sabathia. Notice a trend? Aside from Roy Halliday, it is a different group of pitchers who have that peak season each year. Trying to pick the right one is not easy. Yes, Halliday is an easy pick, a safe pick, but it's Verlander who is going in the middle of the first round this year. Be careful. Another question, who are the best of the $1 catchers? Drafting catchers is like playing doctor. At first, do no harm. So focus on any isolated skill that will have some value, even at the expense of another skill. For instance, a low average power hitter has value because you can always offset that average elsewhere. These are catchers like Jared Saltomachia, John Buck, and in deeper leagues, even Kelly Shopik. A catcher with a good contact rate but empty stats otherwise still has value because then you don't have to worry about the batting average drain while you bulk up elsewhere. These are catchers like Josh Tolley and Jorvit Torrealba. And in the worst case scenario, just find a catcher who is not expected to get much playing time. A number two behind a frontliner who is going to play pretty much every day. Someone like Dave Ross or Gerald Laird. In auctions, what do you think about throwing out endgame players early? I think it's a terrific idea. Doing this serves several purposes. First, it tends to squeeze out a few extra dollars onto the table early. When everyone is flush with cash, $1 endgame players can be pushed to 2 or 3 or 5 because, well, well, there's plenty of money still left. This is great to do with... Yes, catchers, because everyone needs them and the talent drop-off is so severe. It's tempting to grab a Tori Alba for 2 or $3 because it's one less roster spot that you have to think about. But had you waited, he likely would have been there at the end for less. Another thing that tossing endgamers early does is put your opponents off their game. 
People tend to think linearly and budget their draft dollars likewise, which is why the more expensive players go first. It's far easier to figure out how to allocate your resources that way. Once someone starts dropping differently valued players into the stream, it mucks up the thought processes. Yes, it's just a slight psychological edge, but still one nonetheless, and in auctions, you need to employ any edge you can. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about refocusing on the marketplace. Ron discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get his master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also delivers those master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 24th. You might have heard it a day or two earlier. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and ask them to go to iTunes for a second and give our show five stars. If you haven't done that yourself, please do. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Todd Zola of MastersBall.com and now consulting with ESPN. And they made a great choice. He's one of the sharpest guys in the business and a heck of a nice guy to boot. I also want to thank our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor leagues analyst was Rob Gordon and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out our two-part Diamond Challenge discussion with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball and BaseballHQ.com's Josh Paley. Neil Fitzgerald has a study of reliability and ADPs in rotisserie strategy for draft and hold leagues. And Ray Murphy has his annual Long Shots for Leaders column, always a lot of fun, and he updates the straight draft guide as well, so Ray's been busy. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday at BaseballHQ.com. And I have a research essay about extreme ground ball and fly ball pitchers on the site right now. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. I'll be in New York this weekend for Tout Wars. I'm in the Mixed Leagues draft for the first time. You can follow all the Tout Wars drafts live this weekend on SiriusXM Satellite Radio on their Fantasy Sports Radio channels. And I'll have some interviews and analysis from Tout Wars next week on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com radio where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.